Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host and producer. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show is Matilda and the Wobblies, Censorship and Sensibility. Tonight's show features a discussion about Margaret Atwood's 1987 dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Today's show is Honey from a Weed, about the life and work of visionary food writer Patience Gray. Censorship and Sensibility features local author and film scholar Joan Hawkins in conversation with writer Laurie Stone with Robin Henderson on her grandmother, the wobbly organizer Matilda Rabinowitz. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We begin with a controversy by challenging ideas and arguing with those close to us. Coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Interchange on WFHB. Smart, funny, well-spoken, and complex. Prickly, too. The provocations of an opinionated persona. We get personal. What did it mean to wear no rig in 1918? Here's a response to those who might object to the assertion that the catastrophe of The Handmaid's Tale cannot happen here. It already has. And of course, the discussion is timely and relevant in light of the seemingly eternal recurrence of impulses in the human, especially when those impulses are useful to men in power, and what lessons we can take from her great book. Back with more patriarchal, theocratic music when Interchange returns on WFH. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to Interchange on WFH. She should have the first word. I think after that wonderful Rob Schoon produced montage intro, you know who I am, but I'll say it anyway. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. We're live in the studio where we have tomorrow in sight and we'll have fun tonight, right, Jen? Absolutely. I say we because as as you now know, Jen Brooks, one time Interchange studio engineer, is in the studio with us and uh, she's going to help us tonight with uh, all sorts of things, but basically pitching for Interchange and your support for us. That's right. I'm so pleased to be here. I'm so pleased to be a part of WFHB, both as a listener, listener supporter, and volunteer. So, super stoked. (laughs) As we all are. (laughs) 
Uh, and as a, for, uh, a fun drive warm-up, go to your phone, please. Call us with a donation, 812-323-1200, or to your computer, wfhb.org. Uh, there'll be a donate option there. And you can pledge along with me. I pledge $10 a month, and it comes out of my bank account. You can do it out of your credit card. But we'll tell you more about that later, 812-323-1200, to pledge. The opening song... TGIF was off of the 1972 album Papa Don't Lay That Crap on Me, but I'm replacing one word there by the Chicago Woman's Liberation Rock Band featuring Le Tigre. I loved that song, by the way. I think Jen did too. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and I'm sorry for the bleeping FCC restrictions also. Today we show our support for women as we ask you to sh- show support for interchange. We'll hear, hear clips that highlight the fight for women's rights in the country where 77% of women polled will not identify as feminist but believe men and women should be equal socially, politically, and economically. Mm. Those are 2013 poll numbers, but I can't imagine they've changed for the better, which to me means calling yourself a feminist. Let's do that, everybody. It's the last Tuesday of Women's History Month, and so we decided to share some clips from the past shows which focus primarily on feminists and feminism. And let's set the tone on Emma Goldman's terms. I'll quickly note that Goldman is our topic next time on Interchange. She's principally known as an anarchist and who, along with Alexander Berkman, J. Edgar Hoover claimed to be the most dangerous anarchist in America. Perhaps it doesn't need saying, but I'll say it. She was also a feminist. And as Lynn Farrow has said, feminism practices what anarchism preaches. This is from the 1910 essay, The Tragedy of Woman's Emancipation. Quote, The general social antagonism which has taken hold of our entire public life today, brought about through the force of opposing and contradictory interests, will crumble to pieces when the reorganization of our social life based upon the principles of economic justice shall have become a reality. Peace or harmony between the sexes and individuals does not necessarily depend on a superficial equalization of human beings, nor does it call for the elimination of individual traits and peculiarities. The problem that confronts us today, and which the nearest future is to solve, is how to be oneself and yet in oneness with others, to feel deeply with all human beings and still retain one's own characteristic qualities. This seems to me to be the basis upon which the mass and the individual, the true Democrat and the true individuality, man and woman, can meet without antagonism and opposition. Unquote. Thank you, Emma Goldman. Tell it, Emma. Of course, this USA continues to be rife with social antagonism. The clips we'll play today show the ways women have fought to expose the structural nature of that antagonism, in an oppressive male supremacy. So, as we started in 1910, let's stay in the first half of the 20th century. We'll turn to 1941 in a conversation not that didn't happen in 1941, Jen. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, good. Sorry. Thank you for this, clarifying. Yeah, this is more recent than that. Um, a conversation with Jill Lepore about suffrage and polyamory in her book, The Secret History of Wonder Woman. But I stumbled into an archival discovery about Wonder Woman while working on other projects, and it was a, quite an imp- important archival discovery and cast a lot of light on uh, a little-known element of American political history. And I ended up writing the book because I felt I was so excited at the idea 
that into a book called The Secret History of Wonder Woman that really does explain the origins of Wonder Woman as a character and, and a lot about the history of comics, I would smuggle in an entire account of the history of the women's rights movement in the first half of the 20th century, which is very poorly known in the general public. It's not taught in schools. I mean, often when I give a lecture about Wonder Woman in public, I ask people in the room, you know, in a lecture, close your eyes. And when I'm going to say the civil rights movement, what do you picture? And people raise their hands and everybody has a photograph. Every, or they have moving footage. You know, they have uh, like a um, long shot of the mall in 1963 in Martin Luther King. They have they have um, Selma people, a sort of street view. They can picture a busboy caught. They can picture George Wallace talking before microphones and a can- you know, there's a whole yeah. kind of Pinterest gallery. It's, yeah, it's documented per- and, and, and it's and taught. And we see, we we really do we kind of have that available. And it, it, and I say okay, the suffrage movement. People still have their eyes closed and and people can't think of anything. <laughs> um, there really just isn't, and, and it's not that it was less photographed. Photography was available mm. then. Um, there's also silent film footage from that era, um, certainly from the latter end of the suffrage campaign. And yet it, it just isn't part of our popular culture in quite the same way. And, and yet it involved endless marches and civil disobedience, hunger strikes, arrests by the dozens, parades, mock elections. I mean, there's a ton of political theater. It's a very visual thing. So it's interesting that we... It's just a, I just use that as an index of how how little people are acquainted with that. And it, it is quite an important part of American political history. So Wonder was created in 1941, um, written by William Moulton Marston, who had these three degrees from Harvard. He was an undergraduate there. He had a graduate law degree and a PhD in psychology. And he's better known as the inventor of the lie detector. His work is on emotions and the detection of emotions using machines to detect emotions. Um, he was a sort of defrocked and blacklisted academic because he also believed in polyamory and uh, he married his childhood sweetheart but then they brought into their marriage a younger, much younger woman named Olive Byrne and they raised four children together and for this, for his domestic arrangements, Marston was blacklisted from academia. He went on to work in Hollywood as an advisor uh, to Universal Studios. He hooked people up to his lie detector and measured their emotions, their responses to films and then he was hired by DC Comics at the end of the 1930s after he left Hollywood to do kind of the same thing, which is to say bring his expertise and what gets people excited and what is too much excitement. This is a time of the Hayes Code, uh, which had you know d- 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 drawn a line around what films in Hollywood could do, and comics were being subject to similar scrutiny by the Catholic Church in particular. So Marston said, oh, I have the solution for you. Well, you should publish a superhero comic book where the superhero is a woman. But the the and, and the story kind of unfolds from there with regard to Wonder Woman's further history. She's this you know the most recognizable female popular culture icon. Uh, she's created only Superman and Batman have lasted as long or been so continuously in print, and yet she's um, not. She comes from a completely different place than they come. Superman really comes from science fiction, and Batman really comes from detective fiction. But Wonder Woman, in fact, comes from the suffrage movement. It comes from the early feminist movement of the 19-teens, and in particular comes from the birth control movement. And the archival find that I made that led me to believe I really ought to write the book is that um, Olive Byrne, who was Marston and his wife's other partner in the raising of their four children, was the, the daughter of Ethel Byrne, who was the first woman in the United States to go on a hunger strike. Um, and she's the niece of Margaret Sanger. And Margaret Sanger and Ethel Byrne, sisters both nurses, founded the first birth control clinic in the United States in 1916 and founded essentially what became Planned Parenthood. So Wonder Woman in many ways really is inspired by and based on Margaret Sanger. And that is really quite an important piece of political history. And it's, it was kept a secret by the family because the presence of Olive Byrne in the family 
just as a third member of the marriage, was scandalous and, and th- threatened to damage, you know, the, the, the purchase that Marston had found in a different industry, having been blacklisted from academia. Not because they were embarrassed of Margaret Sanger, but because they were, they were trying to protect Sanger and her work uh, as really one of the most important, you know, very, very complicated character, a very controversial figure for a lot of reasons, um, but not, not controversial at that time in the same way that she, that she has since become. So, um, you know, the, the trope of a book calling a book the secret history of is a com- tired and hackneyed thing. I was actually more or less having fun with it. <laughs> like, this actually, no, really, this is a secret. Mm-hmm. No one knew mm-hmm. that. Again, that was Jill Lepore. That's, uh, she's a Harvard University professor of history. She was in town for the Patton Lectures. The talk with, with Jill Lepore was fascinating. Wonder Woman, the history itself with William Moulton Marston and, and Sanger, etc. It's just a fascinating uh, period of time. And to connect that with the comic books, is just it's just kind of fascinating. It's 40s, the 40s. Well, I agree with all of that. But <laughs> it's also really interesting, you know, in the beginning of the show, you were talking about this reticence of people to call themselves feminists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although... In reality, they may support the values, the policies that are represented by by feminism. So how does that happen? Well, one of the ways that happens is through the construction of history. Mm-hmm. And what gets sanctioned in history and what gets silenced in history, I think, matters a lot to mm-hmm. these conversations. So super interesting. Jill Lepore's, uh that clip really blew my mind actually. <laughs> That's great to hear. Now we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back with some more uh, clips. This song is Ain't Gonna Marry, another one from the Chicago Woman's Liberation Rock Band from 1972. When we come back we'll hear from Kathy Weeks on Shulameth Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex with a little bit of Peggy Seeger thrown in as a bonus. Stay with us on Interchange. Ain't gonna marry, ain't gonna settle down. Ain't gonna marry, ain't gonna settle down. I'm gonna stay right here, celebrate a freedom that I found. Ain't gonna be easy, ain't gonna be a life of ease No, no, ain't gonna be easy, it ain't gonna be a life of ease But I am a woman, and I'll be damned if I can't do as I please
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Again, that was Ain't Gonna Marry, another one from the Chicago Woman's Liberation Rock Band, 1972. It's a great era. A lot of these clips come from that era. Um, Again, this is Interchange on WFHB. We're highlighting shows about feminism and key feminist writers. We're calling it Supporting Women. And we're asking you to support Interchange during this, our Spring Fund Drive show. Joining me in the studio is Jen Brooks. Good evening. <laughs> good evening. <laughs> it's good to have you here, Jen. <laughs> Real quick, before we listen to another clip, how do dedicated listeners show us support, Jen? So easy. Call us right now at 812-323-1200. You can also go online to wfhb.org. Very appreciative of your support. It's uh, absolutely essential to funding the station. So, um I'm going to stop blabbing now, except to remind you once again, 812-323-1200. That is easy. Thank you, Jen. And I do want to shout out to Limestone Post, uh, who is a day sponsor today. Limestone Post, an independent magazine committed to providing a space for informative, inclusive, and in-depth stories about Bloomington and the surrounding areas. Thank you, Limestone Post, for your support of WFHB community radio. Uh, So we're going to take a quick jump into another uh, clip. This is Kathy Weeks on what she calls the best of second wave feminist Shulamith Firestone's thinking, the abolition of gender. This clip opens with a quote from Firestone's uh, The Dialectic of Sex, and we get a taste of the great Peggy Seeger also. Here's Firestone on the impetus for the masculine technological mode of thought. Quote, But man was not only able to project the conceivable into fantasy, he also learned to impose it on reality. By accumulating knowledge about that reality and how to handle it, he could shape it to his liking. This accumulation of skills for controlling the environment, technology, is another means to reaching the same end, the realization of the conceivable in the possible. Unquote. What's the best of Firestone at this? Let's start with that. The best, I think, is the way she thinks about the future. Mm. Um, And so, and again, this is something that you don't find after the 1970s very often, is that she was really willing to try to imagine a different far off future. You know, what would, what would feminist revolution look like? Now she wasn't trying to offer blueprints and, and she was quite clear. That's not what she was trying to do. Part of, she was trying to like, but convince us by example on the need to stretch our sociological imagination. So we understand, you know, the role of larger institutions, the institution of work and family in the construction of gender hierarchies but also to stretch our political imagination. You know, we really have to sort of imagine, you know, what's possible, not tomorrow or the next day, but what might be possible, you know, a long time in the future and what it would mean to build um, a political, a set of political desires and political organizations that might be able to deliver eventually, you know, in the far off future, a very different kind of world. So I really love the fact that she was even willing to speculate about utopian futures. Her vision, and this is the content of the vision, it was a vision of cybernetic communism, right? And a key component of it, and this is actually sort of a path to bring us from the present to a future of cybernetic communism, was a proposal for a guaranteed basic income. Mm -hmm. 
right? That would sort of separate work from income, right? In a, in a, in a period where there weren't going to be enough jobs to go around because of technological developments. She was trying to imagine how we could fundamentally reorganize work and the allocation of income um, that would be adequate to a highly technologically based economy in the future. Now, at the time, in 1970, this was seen as crazy. Mm-hmm. But today, you know, it's remarkably prescient and remarkably timely. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is it's a vision of a post-familial society, right? And again, for her, the institution of the family which privatizes our responsibility for the work of reproducing us as workers and creating new generations of workers, that the family and the institution and the ideologies of the family was one of the problems. So she imagined a series of alternatives, you know, a a, a larger menu of the way that people might form households, for example, Mm -hmm. that people enter into on a voluntary basis, they may or may not set time limits on it. Um, you know, a series of different ways of forming networks of sociality and care that might support child raising among a collective of people, for example. Mm-hmm. So, placing the family with a set of you know different possible forms of household organization and membership. Mm-hmm. The last part of this vision is of a, a post-gender world. Right. So she wants to imagine a world where however you imagined sex difference to be sort of organized, whether it's genitals or biology, that those physical differences would not matter culturally or socially. Right. So biological sex would not be translated not just into sort of two possibilities of experience where males are raised to be masculine and females to be feminine, but that those physical differences will have as much social meaning as the size of our earlobes. Mm-hmm. You know, in this moment, it's worth sort of reopening this imagination of the abolition of gender. That's Kathy Weeks speaking about Shulamith Firestone, uh, what she calls the best of Firestone. There's a lot in there, Jen. There is a lot in there, and a lot that seems just as relevant right now as in 1970. Mm. Why would it go away? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that strikes me so much about that passage is is um, the highlighting of the visionary um, capability of this of this author to really imagine a world and norms that are completely sort of impossible in the moment, at least seemingly. Mm. And yet here we are only 45-ish years later, and we're not at a post-gender world by any means, but we're certainly at a time where there's a language and a discourse about sort of gender neutrality or, and moving away from the binary of gender that, that we've you know had in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's interesting, especially right now, I think for people who are... Um, concerned about the current state of things to remember that um, that process of visioning, which is so often kind of, I think, relegated or um, specific to a female realm, um, that that's not, that's not dreamy. That's not imaginary in the sense of having no basis in reality. Mm-hmm. Well, they, um, Firestone herself had talked frequently about, or he, she wrote frequently about 
the the change uh, to to I guess uh, a cyborg world as as much as anything else. This leads into Donna Haraway's uh, 1984 cyborg man- manifesto. And again, I guess if you become more machine, there's less biology to worry about. It's it's a perplexing. Like part of what uh, Firestone does, and I think this uh, Kathy Weeks went into this in the program was, uh, you know, that things begin to get troubling when we we get visionary sometimes like you have to sort of expect the the extremes from a lot of people that are trying to 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 visualize a new world that has the opportunity to uh do away with patriarchy do away with those hierarchies and 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 firestone herself i think was was very down on biology itself you know Mm. to be a woman itself was was an oppression yeah it's such an interesting thought um and and you know i i can understand some of it i mean look at Look at the oppression wrought upon women, uh, you know, based on our biology or, or using our biological function as a means of oppression of us. Yep. On the other hand, I know many women and uh, who count, who count, who feel their power, um, you know, very deeply rooted in our biology and in our biological function. So, you know, for me, a lot of what. Um, is important in these discussions is to not come to one truth, but to open up a space where um, my truth can be expressed mm, and thought. That's good. That's nicely said. Um, let's do a little bit of thanking right now while we're here Please. as well. We've got a uh, a call came in from John Galuska to support Interchange. Thank you so John. much, John Galuska, for calling in and pledging your support to Interchange and WFHB. Hey, uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about why we like this show, why we like WFHB, Jen. I like your voice, Doug. Oh, that's nice. So, <laughs> so eight one two three two three twelve hundred to pledge for my voice. Go. Yeah, no. Right. Uh, on a more serious note, although you do have a lovely timbre well, you, uh, of your voice, well, thank I, you. I appreciate yours um, as well, Jen. No, I mean, you know, I said it before. There's a community is important, and to be able to sit in community and to talk about ideas that. Um, are not just cerebral. I mean, often this this uh, radio program focuses on literature or uh, books of nonfiction by important thinkers and writers, um, but that's not... Uh, the intellectual is often sort of... Um, uh, just a proxy for the way we're all living our lives, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just a real privilege, I think, to have a space where um, we can talk through these... Um, through some of these really important um, topics um, and, you know, the fact that somebody like yourself, all of the volunteers, spend a considerable time um, to bring this to the radio. Well, uh, it does take effort, of course, but uh, it's a, an enjoyable and fulfilling effort, and that's yeah. that's why I get so much out of it. I am a volunteer. I volunteer to be here on the radio. It's because I like to, obviously. I don't do it because it's uh, someone's forcing me to do it. Uh, but this is uh, a thing. Again, as I said before, it's it's a uh, it's it's let me and helped me grow into. Uh, I guess a, uh, I hope a larger person in terms of how I think about the world. I think the the interesting thing, uh, Jen, you said there in terms of uh, looking at women's biology and gender and trying to understand that there are mo- more truths in the world uh, came came to me came uh, came to me in the um, um, in an email from 
from a listener mm. one time. And this is an important thing, too. Uh, we do get feedback occasionally here, and you can do it any time at 812-323-1200. And you can email us at interchange at wfhb.org as well and tell us what you think. Uh, we need uh, we need that more than ever. It's it's the community that, that's listening that, that's important here. Uh, but I had an email after uh, the show that is our next clip. Uh, our next clip is on... Um, I'm blanking. Oh, there it is. Sorry. On Sexual Politics, which is uh, the book by Kate Millett uh, from 1970, the same year as Shulameth Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex. So I had an email from a listener after the show because during the show I had disparaged Henry Miller, <laughs> the author. And we talk about Henry Miller in this clip. And um, Maggie Doherty, the... the um, the guest on the show talks about him as well. And I had disparaged Henry Miller and the listener liked Henry Miller quite a bit. A lot of his friends liked Henry Miller. Henry Miller meant a lot to him. And it's not wrong to like Henry Miller. Um, and I did not give Henry Miller the time of day really in this particular program. And that's a wrong thing for me to do. As Jen said, there are many truths. One of the things that you come to understand when you listen to these clips and if you take some time to listen to the show is that... Um, you know, we, we kind of have to interrogate our own pleasures, you know, what we like, what we think is important, what, what makes us who we are sometimes. Mm. How did I get to be the kind of reader that likes this or that, the kind of listener that likes this or that? How do I get to be who I am? And that's one of the things I think the, that my work on the show has done for me is helped me interrogate some of those of my own issues, really. Yeah, I think that self-interrogation is important. You know, why do I like what I like? Uh, if I can interrogate and understand better the reasons behind that, it opens up a world of possibilities for me understanding why somebody else might like something different than I do. I will say, uh, I do think Henry Miller's probably had his day in the sun and has had <laughs> plenty of praise. Uh, and it would be fine if we wanted to chat about Anais Nin or, sure, you know, sure. several other women mm. in Henry Miller's lives who probably haven't gotten quite as much press. Maybe not. Uh, but uh, those days pass by too, right? It's, uh, that's one of the things about this era, the 70s, that, that sort of um, it's like a crazy era with Norman Mailer, Philip Roth, you know, all these giants of male, uh, well, let's just say it, giant male penises for the most part, <laughs> you know, who write with their, with their organs for the most part. So, uh, that is a very, uh, and you uh, want to pledge on, pledge on that image, eight one two three two three twelve hundred. Uh, send us uh, your support and love eight one two three two three twelve. Excuse me eight one two three two three twelve hundred to support interchange. You can do that online as well wfhb.org. You can um, give us a, a donation monthly. Uh, I do this via my bank account. You can do it via credit card ten dollars a month, twenty dollars a month. You can also just send us in cash sixty dollars, one hundred twenty dollars. Stop by the station and write a check. Say hello. I would hello. love that. That would be great. So uh, let's do this right now. We'll listen to that uh, clip from Maggie Doherty on Kate Millett, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, identification in fiction. What's interesting and challenging about this book is its eclecticism, is its intellectual eclecticism. And I think she, I mean, I sort of sometimes picture her, because I have been a PhD student, I picture her as a frantic PhD student, mm -hmm. kind of scrambling to put this dissertation together and seeing all of these connections, um, but also not 
sort of being invested necessarily and getting the fullest account of each discipline that she engages with. I mean, that that's an impossibility. Like no one is going to right. write a dissertation that does justice to the history of psychiatry, the history of anthropology, the history of, um, you know, gender policy in, in Western Europe. And this is actually what she's trying to do. It's mm-hmm. a hugely, hugely ambitious project, one that would never be accepted in any English department these days. This is not something mm-hmm. I, I can guarantee you. This is not something one could do anymore. Um, And so I think her effort in bringing all of these things together is in part simply to show that all of these things should be brought together. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think that her emphasis remains on the literary. That is what she's most interested in. And so in a way, when she's toggling between Engels and Freud and Nazi Germany and Ruskin and Mill, she's kind of fleshing out or painting really thickly the broader historical and intellectual context that we have to read some like Henry Miller within, Mm. that it doesn't work just to read Henry Miller in isolation and think that was entertaining or that was interesting or that was titillating. We have to consider that his book is coming at the end of a long history of sex-based oppression. We have Mm -hmm. to consider the way his book might intersect with other theories of gender and sexuality that are oppressive. And that her effort here in bringing is is synthetic. It's an effort to bring all of these different um, traditions and stories and narratives into conversation, so that we might think more broadly about what it means to tell any kind of story about women and gender and sex within this broader context. Mm, that's good. It's uh, it's one of those uh, again those those things we have to kind of. Uh, imagine that all things that we create uh, and that have cultural significance or relevance to us um, do come from somewhere and do speak, even if we don't intend them to necessarily speak in a particular way, and and maybe not let things off the hook so right. easily. Right? That's that's the key to me. Frequently, is that you know we watch TV and we give we we let our brains be sort of. Uh, captured by whatever's happening in front of visually mm-hmm. far more than I think literarily but mm-hmm. uh, but um, this is the case you know in trying to understand why you would read a Henry Miller book in the first place mm-hmm. I mean I, <laughs> <laughs> well he, he was immensely you know he was immensely yeah respected. no but you're, that's that's important right to to say well this you're not reading Henry Miller in the 60s you know you you're I'm reading it now and thinking oh my god are you kidding me um, <laughs> Many women I know who love who love Henry Miller, and yeah. I you know I I will say that there are moments where I have enjoyed Norman Mailer, <laughs> Philip Roth, and I think I mean I think right. sort of buried, and this is not an argument that Millet makes explicitly, but I think is implicit in her critique is a question about identification mm-hmm. when you're reading, right. and is a question about who um, you are supposed to identify with, mm-hmm. and who when we teach literature we expect our students to identify with. Um, And this is, I think this is language we use more now because we are in a time where identity is talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think that her, her sort of question as she, as she puts authors like Miller under the microscope is to say, let's look at this, assuming that we are a reader who does not identify with the male protagonist. Mm-hmm. Let us assume that we see ourselves in the receptacle for the male protagonist, the, liter- the literal receptacle for mm-hmm. the male protagonist's adventures. And then how does this look to us? Right. Um, and I think this is a question that we are still sort of, um, if not wrestling with, at least asking quite a bit um, when we talk about art and culture. Who Who has made it and who is the audience for it and where does that audience end up positioning themselves in relation to it?
Again, that was Maggie Doherty on Kate Millett and her great book, Sexual Politics from the 1970, the literal receptacle for the male protagonist's adventures. You say that with glee. Well, I, I'm a great fan of some of those great authors. So what do you, how do you make meaning of that quote? Mm, it's a rough one, right? So I, as a reader, I have to try to identify with the uh, non-quote-unquote uh, protagonist, right? They're, I mean, the protagonist of a Norman Mailer book is a Norman Mailer stand-in. Right, so it's hard to identify with what is being used in the book. Mm. Uh, if you're a male, perhaps sure, that's right. true. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I to me, what I was really focused on in listening to that clip from Maggie Doherty is her talking about sort of reading Miller in historical terms, mm -hmm. um, and it, it struck me how that's so important and salient right now that we're in this Me Too movement, right? And we've had a lot of the men who have sort of come down from uh, from from that movement so far have been in entertainment and media, mm -hmm. and there's been you know quite a lot of conversation about how do we reckon with enjoying the art of somebody that we know uh, personally. Uh, was vile or right. had vile behavior. So, you know, it's it's a question that we're still wrestling with as a society. It's, again, one of the reasons why a program like Interchange is meaningful to me, um, to be able to draw those connections through generations, you know, to, to think about, say, you know, my mother, I was born in 1972, so I was born into this era in which a lot of this writing was happening, which means that my mother was a full-grown right. adult in this era. So, you know, how would she have understood a conversation mm -hmm. like this as compared to, you know, her daughter 40-something uh, years later? It's, mm. it's interesting to think on. It is, it is. And we're going to have to take a break, and we can think about it during the break. I'm going to think about it a lot. <laughs> think about it. It's time, it's time we listen to Secretary. This is another song by the Chicago Women's Liberation Rock Band. Next up, we'll have some backlash. We'll get a taste of the anti-feminism rampant among white conservative women. Stay with us for more Supporting Women, Supporting Interchange when we return.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is supporting women, and it's our fun drive show. And I'm joined by Jennifer Brooks in the studio. Hi, Jen. Hi, Doug. Hey, uh, we'd like to thank uh, our day sponsor today, Limestone Post, an independent magazine committed to providing a space for informative, inclusive, and in-depth stories about Bloomington and the surrounding areas. Thank you, Limestone Post, for your support of WFHB Community Radio. And I have another donation, a donor to thank, Maria McKinley. Thank you for supporting Interchange, Maria McKinley. Um, So we're running out of time here, believe it or not. I've got three more clips. I don't think we can get to them, so I think I might skip one. So Jen, Jen has chosen, has said, has forced me to skip one. So we'll skip ahead to uh, a sleeping beauty and creep shots. Uh, So we're going to skip to a clip from philosopher and novelist Kelly Oliver. She's at Vanderbilt University. She joined us to talk about her book, Hunting Girls, Sexual Violence from the Hunger Games to Campus Rape, which ought to make us uh, make plain that there are victims here. Do we have that ready? No, we don't have it ready. Uh-oh, there's uh, technical difficulties. Do we have Well, in the meantime, yeah. while uh, they're getting that <laughs> okay. sorted, I want to remind everybody that you can call us right now at 812-323-1200. You can also donate online to wfhb.org. And uh, a big thank you to supporting for supporting WFHB Community Radio. Community Radio needs your funds. We need your money. We need your cash. We cannot do this without you. Uh, please go to the phone, 812-323-1200, to donate to Interchange and WFHB. Uh, you can donate uh, any amount you want. $60 is a sustaining member. $120 is a, a sustaining membership as well. And uh, if you're like me, you can do it out of your bank account once a month. Uh, I think um, that that's... Uh, that's uh, that's the best way to do it, for me anyway. Set yeah, it and forget it. it's nice because then you don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. You can do it in any denomination that makes sense to you. And you know what I just remembered, Doug? What, what? It is WFHB's 25th year oh gosh, on the air. We should air. have said that, yes. That's so true. this is a special year. It's a special year to think about uh, WFHB as rooted in this community, in the community of Bloomington and more broadly, South Central Indiana. Um, you know, we have listeners in Ellettsville and Brown County and, uh, and out in Nashville and Spencer. And um, so it's a, it's a really wonderful thing to be able to occupy the airwaves and to um, talk with our friends and neighbors. So there's, the, there's so many mm-hmm. birds. I think we might have some. I think clip. we have a clip. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that Live the one we radio. want? Is that Sleeping Beauty? Yes. Okay. All right. So we have Sleeping Beauty now. This is again Kelly Oliver. There's so many versions of the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale going all the way back to the 14th century in different cultures. You see it coming up in Spain and Italy, France then taken over, you know, eventually to what we're more familiar with, Disney mm-hmm. in the United States. But it basically is the story of a girl who is put to sleep originally in the original versions through some kind of drugs or magic potion and then raped, literally raped and made pregnant uh, and then wakes up pregnant. And the different versions have uh, different endings of the story, but usually she ends up with the the prince who's raped her in the more familiar Disney version. It's the true love's kiss that awakens her. Right. But that's just, uh, again, it's non-consensual. She's, she's unconscious. So this, this image that we're seeing on college campuses 
especially with social media of unconscious girls who are being sexually assaulted and raped, go, it takes us back to, to these age-old fairy tales of, of unconscious girls being being raped. And that's why I actually, what when I started writing the book, became fascinated by the Vanderbilt case. I mean, it really hit home. Obviously, I'm here at Vanderbilt, so I was hearing a lot about the Vanderbilt case where a young woman of 23 was raped while she was unconscious by three Vanderbilt football players, and she didn't find out about the rape she because she was unconscious until the police told her. And in fact, in the beginning, she didn't believe it because one of the rapists was her boyfriend at the time. And so I really just like, wow, trying to wrap my mind around what would it be like to find out that you had been sexually assaulted through the police telling you or a lot of these girls now are finding out on social media. I mean, that's what happened in the case of the high school girl in Steubenville, Ohio. She sees herself on social media. These, the perpetrators see this as fun. They're taking pictures. Same thing happened at Vanderbilt. They're taking pictures with their cell phones. That's part of the entertainment for them. And they're sending the pictures off to their friends. And in the end, it was those pictures along with some surveillance cameras that uh, enabled at least a conviction. The, the camera serves this double function of both being part of the fun and part of the assault, and then it's something that the victims have to live with, this, this shadow, this evidence of their humiliation and shame and assault being shown over and over again. It just doesn't go away on social media, but on the other hand, it becomes this kind of hard evidence that shows the assault is real when Unfortunately, statistics show most of the time women are not taken seriously when they report their rapes or not a lot of evidence. It's sort of a he said, she said. Then most of the time the perpetrator will get off. Right. won't even be prosecuted. But in these cases, they're taking pictures, and then those pictures can be used against them. That was Kelly Oliver from Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University. Her book was Hunting Girls. That, again, is one of those things that we kind of take for granted. Sleeping Beauty myth. Drugged and raped. Yeah, it's a, it's a harrowing reveal to really think about the true um, narrative of that story. And then to think about the way that that story then gets reproduced um, and sanitized. And yet there's something insidious in it still, right? Um, so, you know, even if you take out the, the idea that Sleeping Beauty is drugged and then raped, um, you know, m many feminist critiques of the sort of more sanitized version are also valid of this idea that, you know, the woman is a, is a damsel waiting for her prince to save her. So it's, it's, you know, we talked earlier in the show about this idea of the silences in history and the construction of history. So, um, you know, there are implications to the stories that we choose to tell as a society. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting part of our, um, uh, I guess, videotaped culture in some sense, right, that that's, the stories are being captured, if not told. And, and one of the things that Kelly Oliver made plain there and in, in the show itself is that the camera is now the arbiter. Right, the camera not only participates in the the actual uh, rape or domination or oppression or abuse. The camera is there and taking pictures, and it's part of the entertainment. It's also the only thing people believe as well. A woman is often not believed when she says, "I've been raped." But if you got a picture, well, we'll believe that. Yeah, yeah, 
And, you know, and it's interesting, too, the generations sort of behind me who grew up with a cell phone, who grew up with um, posting selfies and pictures, chronicling their life in social media. It's clear there's a, a very different norm going on in these younger generations. I work at Indiana University on campus, and I interact with a lot of undergraduate students. And I was recently um, in, in the locker room at the, uh, the student rec center, the SRSC, and I was in a the sauna space, and these young young women kept coming into the sauna with their phones. Although there are p- signs everywhere saying this is a cell free so- cell free cell phone free zone. Right, right. And so you know, of course, I'm old and grouchy, grouchy, <laughs> so I have no problem telling them nicely, you know. And I had to explain. I had to mm-hmm. actually qualify. It's problematic for you to have a device with a camera and video capability in this space. Mm-hmm. And it didn't occur to them at all. And right. that's important. It is. It is. And it is important that we don't think about privacy anymore, really. Uh, let us let me thank really quickly, too. we got one more clip, and I want to get it in. I'm going to thank a couple of people who donated online and uh, have actually sent in checks as well. Can you believe that? You can send in a check. Uh, we do have a physical address. I'm blanking on it right now. 108 4th South 4th Street, something like that. Uh, Just give us a call. 108 West 4th Street at uh, Bloomington, <laughs> Indiana. Uh, 47404, I believe. Uh, Doug Harvey, thank you for your donation. Paul Buell, thank you for your donation. Hiroki Kuramiya, thank you so much for giving thank to you. Interchange. Thank you for supporting us. Our last clip of the night is Megan Murphy on prostitution and male violence. Well, let me, uh, I'll read real quick uh, a comment about this. It's from uh, Gunilla Ekberg, special, mm-hmm. special advisor to the Swedish Division for Gender Equality in the Ministry of Industry, Employment, and Communications. She says, in Sweden, prostitution is officially acknowledged as a form of male sexual violence against women and children. One of the cornerstones of Swedish policies against prostitution and trafficking in human beings is the focus on the root cause, the recognition that without men's demand for and use of women and girls for sexual exploitation, the global prostitution industry would not be able to flourish and expand. Yeah, I mean, the thing about prostitution is that it's always coercive. Most women in prostitution are poor brown women. Most women in prostitution are in prostitution for lack of choice. If sex is something that's truly consensual in an idealistic sense, in a feminist sense, then you don't need to pay somebody because if two people want to have sex, they just have sex. Um, the payment is is to coerce somebody who wouldn't otherwise have sex with you into having sex with you. Right. So, you know, that's why we call it male violence against women and sexual violence because, you know, we, as much as we as a society sort of like when we're talking about prostitution, we like to pretend like it's just purely a, a transaction or just any other service like you know selling somebody a coffee or giving somebody a massage or something like that we obviously do see sex as something different you know it's it's a vulnerable situation for women you know you're being penetrated by another person you know that is not the same as giving somebody a massage or Mm -hmm. serving them a cup of coffee and we obviously understand sex as something different or because if we didn't we wouldn't see rape as something that was so serious. You know, we understand that rape is something traumatic for people um, and that it's a violation. So if we understand that, I sort of, I, I never really understand how people 
can argue that prostitution is no different than any other job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that I think that this system wherein there's a working class and they have to work for people who are in the upper class is right. a good system. Like, it's right. not like I think that other exploitation under capitalism is okay. You know, right. I'm opposed to capitalism as a whole. So right. often people will make that argument that they're like, oh, well, is it okay to exploit people in other forms of labor? And it's like, no. But, you know, as feminists, we obviously see prostitution as a particularly gendered phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But, and, you know, beyond that, you know, prostitution is particularly traumatic and particularly abusive Mm -hmm. because it's because of the the sex part. And, um, you know, women in prostitution suffer from high rates of PTSD. Mm. Um, They often have backgrounds of abuse and are, you know, often, often, often abused in prostitution by Johns. Um, and those, you know, those kinds of situations aren't common in other forms of labor, despite the fact that the, those forms of labor might be exploitative. People aren't getting raped and sexually harassed and groped and, um, you know, abused at the same rates as, as women in prostitution. That's Megan Murphy. She's the founder and editor of The Feminist Current. One uh, last word on Megan on that um Clip Jenner. Well, Megan Murphy's a fantastic thinker, and, and you know, I think it's important uh, the, her framing of prostitution as an act of violence, and really understanding that the commodification of a woman's body is uh, is should be thought of as a different and uh, as a different act of other forms of commodification, mm-hmm. and that in a society where there was true equality among uh, sexes, that Uh, that would never be permissible. Mm. Well, this is going to have to do it for our Fund Drive show. Uh, We're going to close with one last song from the Chicago Women's Liberation Rock Band. This is I'm On My Way. I've got some more thank yous. These are online thank yous or thank yous for online donations. Gail Leander Wright, uh, an online donation. Thank you. Thank you to Dimitri Papaliers for an online donation. I had a couple of donations via Facebook. I'm forgetting what they are right now. Please don't be mad at me. I'll thank you next week, I promise. Uh, remember to call us, 812-323-1200, to show you value interchange on WFHB. You can also donate online, wfhb.org. Your gift is the only way shows like this one stay on the air, stay online, and are archived for you to return to again and again. Thank you, Jen Brooks, for being here with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Next time on Interchange, Emma Goldman adding feminism to anarchism. Quote, woman to be free must be the mutual friend and mate of man. The individual is the ideal liberty. We owe no duty to anyone save ourselves. When universal woman once comprehends this ideal, then all protective laws intended for protection, which is indeed her weakness, will disappear and adulterous and this adulterous system goes and with it charity and all its attendant ills. In short, the new woman's movement demands an equal advancement by the modern man. Emma Goldman adding feminism to anarchism. Next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6, 6 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm, producer and host of Interchange. As I said, Jennifer Brooks joined me in the studio tonight as co-host. Thanks again, Jen. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and the dude who made that awesome montage opening for the show. Bryce Martin kept it all straight tonight and Wes Martin assisted and he keeps it uh, straight every night as our studio engineer. Wes Martin is our executive producer, the guy that takes the heat if I upset you. Thanks, Wes. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie. Show them some love. Coming up next on WFHB.